Hello, and welcome back to The Imposters, the podcast series for PhD students by PhD students. I am your host, Francesca Vaghi, and today we will be talking about mental health, both our struggles with it during the PhD, but also how to take care and seek help. Joining me in the studio are Laura Hamilton from the Department of Social Sciences at UCL and Liana Chase from the Anthropology Department at SOAS. Thank you for tuning in to SOAS Radio, and welcome once again to The Imposters. Take a load up. So welcome again, and hello, Liana. Hello. Hi, Laura. Hello. So as I mentioned, we will be talking about mental health today. So just a disclaimer to listeners that we might uh, be talking about some topics that you will find difficult. So do um, tune out, I guess, if, if you think that might be a bit of a hard listen. Before we begin, I also would like to say that this is a topic that listeners and friends have encouraged me to talk about on the podcast, so I really hope it'll be a useful session. I'm very lucky to be joined by two people who, for various reasons, have, have very interesting insights about this topic, uh, so I'm really looking forward to hearing about, you know, experience and, and, and you know, just general thoughts about why it's important to talk about mental health as PhD students. So without much further ado, I would like to invite Laura to introduce <coughs> herself a bit more and her research to begin with. Yeah, so my background is actually in psychology um, and I was originally interested in health psychology. So physical activity, healthy eating, that sort of thing. And um, I, uh, during my master's, ended up working in a research unit to try and get some research experience at a university. And I ended up kind of just going on to any project I could, could get to get experience and obviously to, to earn some money. And I ended up working with a, a really great woman who, who did projects with, with young people, food and deprivation. So my interest in healthy eating kind of developed into food more generally. And at the time that I was working on this project, um, so there was a lot of political things going on. I'm quite interested in politics. We had the independence referendum in Scotland where we saw young people 16, 17 years old getting the vote. They had a voice, they had an opinion. Whereas the, the the coalition government were kind of scaling back on welfare benefits services for young people. We saw that they weren't allowed housing benefit anymore. Tuition fees had gone up, all these different things. And I kind of started thinking, well, hang on a second. Young people need more of, of a voice. People kind of shove them to the side and, and say, oh, you're young, like your opinion doesn't matter. And it do, they do matter. Their opinion does matter. So, um, yeah, that's when I got interested in, in food, food and eating practices uh, and young people. And through sort of my interest in politics, seeing austerity and, and cuts to services, um, I kind of became interested in, in inequality as well. And health inequalities I come from, from Glasgow and, and Glasgow City has the lowest life expectancy for both men and women in the UK. Um, it's got some pretty 
deprived areas and, and Scotland generally has a lower life expectancy in comparison to, to other regions of the UK and um, yeah I heard about this PhD opportunity working alongside a project that that was focused on food poverty in young people and I thought yeah look, I have to I can't not take this opportunity it's so close to what I'm interested in and my PhD just kind of developed into rather than food poverty I, I'm looking at young people's food and eating practices so nutrition diet what they buy what they eat cook prepare and also socializing around food but how this kind of compares between young people in higher income households and then young people in, in lower income households and and are there any differences is, is it the same kind of thing so yeah that's kind of how I got to where I am now great thank you for that Laura Liana uh, yeah, so I am doing my PhD research in anthropology, but focused on mental health. So I'd consider myself a psychological anthropologist. Uh, and I became interested in mental health at a very young age because of the struggles of family members and friends, people in my immediate social context. And then I kind of came to anthropology through a more roundabout way. So I was very interested in traditional medicine and traditional med medical practices. Uh, and as an undergraduate, I uh, started working with a medical anthropologist who works on traditional Tibetan medicine in Nepal. Uh, and so the first time I went to Nepal, I was 19, and I was a research assistant um, to this medical anthropologist, and I was working with uh, traditional medical practitioners uh, of Ayurvedic and Tibetan medical traditions. So I guess um, what really brought me to Nepal was kind of the richness of healing traditions that exist in the country, um, rather than the lack of medical services, which is what brings a lot of medical anthropologists to Nepal. And while I was over there, I, I think I became fascinated by the variety of ways in which mental health problems manifest, and also um, the variety of approaches to treatment that exist. Um, so that, that kind of brought me to specialize my research on mental health, uh, psychological anthropology work in Nepal. Uh, so I returned after my undergraduate years for a Fulbright Fellowship in 2011 to 2012, and there I was working in the Bhutanese refugee camps uh, in the eastern part of the country, and I was looking at uh, ethnopsychology or kind of local ideas about how the mind works and healing the mind. Um, and I think I was really fascinated to see that some of the people who have had the most difficult life experiences, and this will sound, you know, trite, um, but can still be very full of joy and can still lead a very joyful life. Whereas in other cases, you know, people aren't able to overcome what they've experienced or the hardship that they've encountered, the adversity that they face on a day-to-day -day basis, and they um, they do suffer tremendously. Um, so after that, I kind of I continued work with refugees and asylum seekers. I did a master's in psychiatry, a research degree, not a clinical degree, so I'm definitely not qualified to be giving clinical advice. Um, but I did work for three years with asylum seekers and torture survivors in Canada, in Montreal. And then uh, for my current PhD research, I had actually planned to continue working with the Bhutanese refugees in Nepal. And then the earthquake struck very soon after I was accepted to SOAS. Uh, so in 2015, there was a major earthquake in Nepal. Around 9,000 people died. And so I completely shifted the focus of my um, doctoral research. And right now, I'm essentially looking at the mental health and psychosocial response to the earthquakes. Um, so before the earthquakes in a lot of these rural areas of the Himalayan foothills where I work, 
Um, there were almost no mental health services. A lot of people wouldn't recognize the terms for mental health or psychosocial care. Really, mental health problems are dealt with in the spiritual domain. So by going to a shaman, for example, um, or in among family members within social networks. Uh, and after the earthquake, there was kind of this rapid influx of mental health, uh, of funding for mental health programs and mental health services became available in a lot of places where they hadn't been. Um, so that's really what I'm tracing in my doctoral research now is uh, what does that look like? You know, what is, first of all, what is the process of translation that needs to take place for mental health discourses and practices to be um, comprehensible to people in this area? How do the people take up and engage with those discourses and practices once they've been introduced? So how do they understand them? How do they reconcile them to what they already know and believe? Um, so I spent about seven months in Kathmandu looking at kind of the institutional side. How are these um, guidelines, you know, implemented and translated? And then I spent seven months in a village in the most earthquake-affected district looking at how people engage with uh, newly introduced mental health services. Thank you. That's um, so interesting. And, you know, I also know quite a lot about your research mm -hmm. because we are in the same cohort, but it's always lovely to get a reminder of, of the intricacies of the projects. It's lovely as well that we get kind of two, two sides to the conversation about mental health, one very much UK focused and then kind of a comparative one. I'm sure we will talk a bit more about that. Um, but before we do, I would like to invite Liana to tell us a bit about the, the first song that we will play uh, today. All right, so the song is by Ani Choying, who's a, a Tibetan Buddhist nun who's actually Nepali and lives in Nepal. The song is a classic folk song in Nepal. Everyone would recognize it. Uh, and it kind of captures what I see as, um, you know, Buddhist wisdom around the mind that I think is relevant across cultural contexts. Uh, so the song is called Fulko Akama, which means in the eyes of a flower. Uh, and the, the lyrics roughly translate to in the eyes of a flower, the world is flower in the eyes of a thorn, the world is thorny. So the basic principle is that, you know, life life can be extremely beautiful, and they use the term samsara, so this endless cycle of rebirth, can be extremely beautiful, or it can be torture, depending very much on the lens through which you're looking at it, and that lens is the, is the mind. Thank you very much. Uh, so we'll be right back after this little break. Fulku akama, fulai sansara, kaadaku akama, kaadai sansara. Fulku akama, fulai sansara, kaadaku akama, kaadai sansara. Julkin chahai chaya, bostu ansara, kaada ko akama, kaadai sansara, fulku akama, fulai sansara, kaada ko akama, kaadai sansara.
that was really lovely and really nice that we get a bit of a context about what the song says as well. Um, so I'd like to then go on and go into the topic that we're here to discuss. So why is it important to talk, talk about mental health? And this is something that actually Laura and I have talked about before. Um, yeah, so I read this study that um, PhD students in particular suffer, I, I think it's a third, suffer from mental health issues and it's greater than the general population or even members of the population that have sort of equivalent qualifications which strikes me as as something quite specific to being a PhD student there's clearly something there that that is associated with with mental health I myself suffered from from mental health issues I had to take uh, three months off my PhD so I uh, had an interruption because it became too much Um, so PhD is hard and uh, my mum ended up suffering from a stroke in June 2006 so I was doing a lot to kind of take her to hospital appointments to help her and our relationship kind of suffered because of that as well and um, I got to the point where it was no longer a feeling of treading water. It was, okay, now I'm drowning. Like, I can't tread water anymore. There is something weighing me down. And um, I was coming up to my upgrade submission in the September of 2016 and submitted and and gave a draft uh, version to my supervisors. And I remember being in the office at the time, I think it was 20 minutes before my meeting with them to discuss it. And I read their comments back and I just, you know, broke down in tears with my head on the desk crying because I felt like this thing I tried really hard to work on and it was constructive criticism, but it was still really difficult for me to to read and to take. And that meeting didn't go that well. My supervisors kind of knew that my mum was unwell, but they weren't really aware of the issues that that I was having. And it was kind of a case of, okay, no, we're worried about you. You're, You're behind where we would expect you to be. And as I was leaving the building that afternoon, one of my supervisors kind of stopped me and said, oh yeah, how's how's your mum? And I I kind of lost it (laughs) a bit. And we went for a conversation and she said, look, you're doing things, you're caring for your mum. You you don't sound like you're coping anymore and you need to be really honest and you need to say. So that day I, I told my primary supervisor, I'm re- I am I need to interrupt. And she she's amazing, honestly. I know people talk about having supportive supervi- supervisors. My supervisors are amazing and were amazing when all of this mm-hmm. happened. And she said, right, that's fine. We'll put in for an interruption straight away. It's September, I just come back in January in the new term. And that was kind of it, done deal. I didn't have to worry anymore. So I took the three months off to just kind of collect myself, I guess. I didn't really do any work. I went to the the GP, said, look, there's something not right here. I think I'm depressed. And she kind of said, oh, do you want to take some medication? I knew that, that my issues were stemming from something that is currently going on in my life. I just need to speak to someone about these issues. I don't have any, normally be like my mum I'd go and talk to, but the issues were with my mum, so I couldn't talk to her about them. 
and I went through like an online telephone CBT and then went to the charity mind and had counseling face-to-face counseling with them and you know I'm not I'm not kind of a hundred percent I think that the things that 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 I have they're always going to be there in the background and under the surface but I'm at a place now where I sort of came back in in January 2017 I was like raring to go I felt so much better um and that that whole kind of acknowledging that something is wrong there's something wrong here and it's you know my mum actually said you know the strength in asking for help like that is if you feel like you need to you need to ask for help and if anyone feels like there is something even remotely going on ask for help because that's your first step on the road to being able to cope with what is going on so that's the piece of advice Mm. I would give to anyone really yeah yeah and I think as you said at the very beginning the fact that it's such a high rate of people that are going through it means hopefully that there's a bit less stigma and taboo attached to these conversations at the moment Uh, Liana, what are your thoughts about the importance of talking about mental health? Um, I think it's important to talk about because there's so many misconceptions about mental health that can get in the way of recovery. Um, And so some of those misconceptions do relate to this, to the stigma that we attribute to mental health. So these ideas that you're a weak person, that, you know, you're to blame, that you need to just get yourself together and be strong. And I think for PhD students in particular, we tend to be driven, rather ambitious and driven. And I think a lot of people are afraid that if they acknowledge having a problem, they won't be successful. You know, I think success is a driver for a lot of us, whether, you know, version of success we're striving for. So I think, I mean, one thing I would recommend is that anyone who's interested in this topic listen to a podcast by Krista Tippett called uh, The Depressed Soul. And she interviews three very highly successful, prominent people in the States about their experiences of depression, all have been on antidepressants. And I I think it's a really nice way to kind of debunk some of those misconceptions about success and, you know, characters, strength of character and depression in particular. Um, I think there's also misconceptions about treatment options and particularly medication. A lot of people feel like if they start taking medication, uh, they'll be fundamentally altering their personality. They'll be giving up, you know, the same qualities that drive them to succeed or in academia. And I can only say from, you know, the experience of my loved ones and then also from doing a lot of research on the topic that a lot of people who do take medication feel like they're falling back into their life and uh, feel that they become themselves again rather than the opposite. Uh, And the other thing I would say is a lot of people who resist taking um, medication, I'm certainly not advocating medication over other treatment avenues. I think talking therapy can be wonderful. But I think a lot of people who resist taking medications and continue to have a serious problem end up Mm. self-medicating, either through alcohol or through marijuana. And so I think there's, yeah, there's some important conversations to be had about the advantages of medication, destigmatizing it. In the context of the UK and the NHS, do you think this is becoming more... I know it's definitely been identified as a pressing area for more resources to be poured into. Do you think it's happening or is it still lagging behind? I think the issue is not research. The issue is money. 
We've seen cuts to mental health services in the UK with austerity and that's what our services need. There is a lack of resources um, there for people who, whether it's medication or whether it's counselling or psychotherapy, as I said, I had to go to Mind, which mm. is a charity. They're not run by by the government. They're not run by the NHS. And even then, I had to wait um, about four or five months on a waiting list before I was given counselling. That's a problem. If I I I wasn't in a crisis situation. I wasn't feeling suicidal. I didn't want to self harm. That that was something I did not have. I, I can't imagine how anyone would feel if they did feel like that and they had to wait four or five months on a waiting list to to speak to someone in person. Having sort of telephone online services, CBT, is, is all well and good. But CBT is not a fix-all. I think there has been, in the last maybe 10 years, a real focus on using CBT to fix a lot <clears throat> of problems. That, But it doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't work for everything. Now there's a real focus on mindfulness. We, we kind of like jump from one therapy to mm. the other therapy. Different things will work for different people, but I'll go back to my original answer. Money is the mm. issue. There is not enough money. There are not enough psychi- uh, psychiatric nurses and mental health generally. If you have more severe mental health problems and you need a psychiatric bed, uh, there's not enough room on psychiatric wards. Uh, you know, I'm I'm hearing stories where people are having to um, say, if you don't give me help now, I will kill myself mm. just to get basic <clears throat> mental health provisions in place for them. It should not be like that in 2018 in the UK. Make a quick follow-up comment on CBT and mindfulness. Um, so I think one of the reasons it's much easier to get funding for CBT treatment is because there's a big evidence base around it. And part of the reason for that is that it's a much easier therapy to do research on. So, I mean, you can say, yes, it's the on- one of the only evidence-based talk therapy treatments available, but actually it's because we don't have enough evidence on some of the more individualized um, forms of treatment. We don't know how to do that kind of research. As for mindfulness, just a, a quick note to say that it's not always advised for people with mental health problems, and there's actually um, some potential for harm if you're not in the right frame of mind when you begin it, so just a note mm. of caution. And CBT as well. So through this process, I discovered that actually I've also got quite bad anxiety, mm. in particular social anxiety, and I was doing that thing of self-medicating by drinking in social situations to uh, make myself relaxed and the CBT it it made me realize I had anxiety but all it did was give me a label of the feelings I was feeling oh well I'm having that particular Mm. thought process or that it didn't stop me having those thought processes it just gave a label to them so for me that didn't work but for others it, it might yeah Okay, on that note, we will take a second musical interlude. Uh, This time it's something I picked. It's a song by the Vodka called The Winner Is. Then we'll be right back with more.
so now we're back. Um, the next section is a bit different from what I've done before on the show. Uh, I was lucky that I got to interview someone from the SOAS Student Advice and Wellbeing Service, which is what at SOAS and across, I think, higher education you go to when you when you need any health-related advice. So I spoke to a, a mentor called Pablo van Schravendijk a few a few weeks ago. Uh, so I will play this uh, short interview, and then we'll hear some reactions from Liana and Laura. So I'm here with uh, Pablo van Schravendijk from uh, SOAS's Student Advice and Wellbeing Service. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, um, And we are here to just chat a little bit about the, from a professional point of view, about the kind of issues that students might come in. So before we begin, uh, one of the questions that I had for Pablo was what kind of mental health issues do PhD students come in here seeking advice or help with? Um, well, there are a lot of common issues for PhD students and um, at the moment in higher education there's been a lot of research that's come out in the last 12 months highlighting different issues for different sort of populations, if you like. So um, that kind of mirrors, I think, our experience in student advice and wellbeing and, and within the mentoring service. So I'm a mental health advisor, I also have a psychotherapy background. So the, the, so we're seeing similar issues. So there are things like self-motivation is really key for PhD students and that can be impacted by isolation, both academic and social, which can increase people's low mood or depressive feelings and rise anxiety. Every individual's got a vulnerability. You know, we've all got our own personal vulnerabilities, things we're not so good at. Um, but these can be increased if you're doing a PhD part-time, mm -hmm. if you're not being funded, so you're, you're, you're funding your own fees, plus maybe you're having to work. Um, of course, that gets affected if you're maybe a mature student, you've got family, or you're looking after ageing parents, if you've got a disability, or if you've got uh, pre-existing mental health issues, whether they're officially diagnosed or self-diagnosed. Lots of students have got mental health concerns which are self-diagnosed, never been to any kind of professional for help. I think also not being able to discuss your highly specialised topic. I think that's really key because students feel like, well, no one's going to understand what I'm doing, even maybe my supervisor doesn't understand what I'm doing and so there's no one to talk about. Unrealistic expectations mm. of supervisors. And I think of yourself. You know, um, I think it's easy if you've got two supervisors and they're from different departments or you've got a better relationship with one or not mm -hmm. the other, you can get caught up in a kind of a power dynamic, if you like. And I think there's a lot of, in, in psychotherapy we call it projection, when you, you, you're projecting stuff onto your supervisor, oh, they don't like me, they're not interested in what I'm, what I'm actually wanting to do, and you, you make decisions based on those projections to either withdraw or to avoid. So I think those, those dynamics um, are a real issue. Yeah, that's great. And I think the fact that you say that there is such a wide variety of, of reasons why students might seek help also means that we're not alone in this. And that's reassuring, yeah. even if sad. Uh, can I just say, I think just to sort of summarise that bit is 
being prepared for the emotional challenge of a PhD is something that a lot of students don't really think about. Okay. And that, but that's when they run into problems. I see. Uh, so, on that note, perhaps, uh, why do you think there has been such a rise in mental health issues among students that do PhDs? Is it because people are um, less uh, ashamed, maybe, of coming forward, now that it's a topic, as you say, that is making headlines? Or is it because conditions are worsening in, in higher education? Personally speaking, what I hear from PhD students, um, I think it's more about disclosing more. Mm. Um, what I see a lot with, with PhD students and, and master's students really is that um, they come here and they've got a lot of pre-existing issues that again have never been attended to and the stress and the pressure and the demand of doing a PhD kind of triggers them so you have that element coming in. But I, okay, this is speculative, my next comment, but I think the fees have a real part to play here. And this doesn't just affect PhD students. I think, you know, the idea of having to take an extra year, for mm -hmm. example, really affects student motivation. So if I give you an example, I think a lot of kind of the young people today, they've come out of secondary school, come out of their first degree, and they've been trained to think in this very linear way in terms of their goals. Mm. It's, you know, I've got to get a first or a 2-1 in order to get onto the right master's program, and I need the master's program to get onto that PhD program, and I need, you know, it's this, it's a bit like doing um, a hurdles race in athletics. And if you think you fall at one hurdle, that all of the other hurdles are unreachable. Mm. And so, so I think students can get stuck into this <gasps> sense of disaster and impending doom that if I don't, if this bit doesn't go well, everything else is going to be awful. So I think some of it is about the kind of psychological strategies that, that, that students have and getting into this mindset. And I think a lot of it has, uh, is sort of fostered by a, a general teaching environment. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think that's part of it. And that if you've... Um, and then the financial burden, you, you, you feel like you don't have any flexibility to fail, to make mistakes. And they have re you have really different, um, you know, I always say to students, life doesn't stop because you come to university. Mm. You get ill, you get hospitalised, things go wrong in your families, there's bereavements, all sorts of things happen which can really affect your mental health, your well-being, your ability to focus. And it asks you to, to really um, pull on the kind of coping skills and life skills you've got to manage all that. And I think that, that you know, that's really difficult. And I think that PhD students don't feel that they get enough support at university. Yeah, um, I think that was kind of a very good note to end on, which leads to my next question, mm. which is what can institutions do to help? Because, of course, maybe you're right that a great part of all of this is that we do set sort of unrealistic expectations and, mm. we, and we are trained in a very particular kind of academic uh, style I guess in which we are putting pressure to be excellent all the time yeah. but then that doesn't just come from within us I mean it is an institutional kind of issue as well so is there anything beyond actually funding your services a <laughs> bit more that would be a great point to begin from but what else do you think can institutions do to 
to improve conditions? Well, I think fostering a mindset of um, students thinking, PhD students thinking of each other as peers. Mm. If you think about it, you've got all of these students engaging in a very similar task. You know, it doesn't matter what your specialism is, but there's this three, four year challenge for you, you know, that's going to test you in all sorts of personal and academic ways. And there's a whole lot of you, and you're not talking to each other. So as students don't always talk to each other, mm. they really don't. Fostering um, other or facilitating opportunities for students to meet, to share problems and issues, because then you find out, oh yeah, we're all experiencing very similar issues. When you're uh, uh, meeting up with peers and you've built a relationship, you can get a lot of encouragement to kind of manage things. And of course, you're sharing all your problem-solving skills. Oh, I had a problem with this supervisor. Oh, well, I did too, and I tried this and the... You know, I, I don't think that's happening. Mm. So I think it's, it's about how also supporting students to think about what do I really need to make this a more positive experience? Um, what's my part in that? And how, what, how could I use the people around me in a different way or a better way? Great. Yeah, that's a very nice insight. Um, so beyond coming to the Student Advice and Wellbeing mm. uh, Centre, mm. where else can students seek advice or access resources to cope with mental health issues? Well, there's a lot of resources online now. Um, so, so we have online resources. So, you know, a lot of students don't want to come and have a face-to-face -face or they've got perceptions about what advice and well-being is. So there are a lot of online resources or things on stress and, and anxiety um, and a lot of links. So Student Minds is a fantastic website. Student Union is very good at promoting um, the different sites that students can access. Um, including kind of podcasts and that sort of thing as well. So actually there's a huge amount that you can access yourself. Um, charities like Mind have fantastic information, particularly around anxiety, depression, um, maybe stress management as well. So, so there is a, I think there is a lot out there. Uh, I think often actually what's really helpful is just keeping things simple and going, talk to a friend, talk to someone. Don't bottle up, don't hold everything in. Start discussions with people. And I think that's really the important beginning. Uh, finally, any personal words of advice that you would like for oh, listeners? Oh, how long have I got? <laughs> okay. Identify your personal strengths and how to play to them. So, for instance, you're um, very good at persevering. You've got great self-organizational skills. Play to your strengths. Secondly, identify problems early on. You avoid things building up into a crisis and then turning into something else which becomes more difficult to self-manage. Don't forget the importance of looking after your well-being. A lot of people, students get into this mindset of, oh, I, I don't deserve to have a break. I shouldn't be socialising. I, um, uh, oh no, I never have time for exercise because I feel like I should be studying every day. If you don't look after those areas that nurture your well-being, that compromises your cognitive abilities mm. and your motivation and confidence in yourself. Treat your PhD like a 9-to-5 job. 
The next one is be aware of your psychological drivers. So these are, these are like statements where you hear must, oughts and shoulds in your own self-talk, you know, when you're thinking to yourself and talking. I must be perfect. I must fix everything. I must be the best. When you know what your, what your drivers are, you can see how you, get, how you can manifest anxiety and stress yourself and go, oh, hold on a minute, I can't be perfect in everything I'm doing all the time. Maybe I'm going to have to adopt a bit of good enough thinking. Mm. The last comment is think about the bigger picture of your goal. You know, that thing of, oh, well, I want to get a PhD because I want to teach. Okay, um, think beyond just attaining that. Find, you know, when you get lost, when you feel um, disempowered, when you've lost interest in what you're doing, I think it's so important to connect to the meaning of what you're doing. So why are you doing a PhD? What is it you want for yourself? What's the subject matter about? How, does, how do you connect with that? How does that help you make sense of your world and, and, and your life? When students connect to what they're doing there, they stay motivated, but they also continue to be committed when problems and difficulties come up. And, you know, so often, you know, I'll talk to, to students and they're, cho they're, they're kind of going through the motions. They're doing a PhD for some other reason, and but actually they don't feel very connected to it. And so the moment that problems and things come up in life or in academics, they disengage with it. I think that has an impact on, you know, retention and that sort of thing. Yeah, so I think that's, yeah, that's, that's key. Thank you so much. Right, so I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys think about this, um, this little professional insight. I kind of felt like a lot of the solutions were put back on the PhD student. Um, it's, it's all very well to say these things about, well, you know, don't bottle things up, keep it simple. I think at one point he said, identify your personal strengths and play to those strengths. The problem is... When you have something like depression, part of that is not being able to recognize your strengths. You don't have the motivation to do things. So just being able to identify your personal strengths, if you're able to do that with depression, that is a huge thing if you, if you can do that. I mean, I would say getting out of bed in the morning and being able to make your bed is just even a productive step in the day. Um, for for some people and particularly if I'm having a really bad day um I just kind of felt like the the advice was not based in the realities of a PhD or a PhD mm. student it's all very well saying you know think about what you're going to do afterwards I don't have the time to think mm. about what I'm going to do afterwards people ask me what I'm going to do I don't know I'm just focused on getting mm. this thing finished and doing it it really annoys me when when people use this whole thing of, yeah, but there are these things that, that you can do that will make you feel better, like exercise and eating healthy. Yeah, I know. I know those things will make me feel better. It's the fact that my brain and body aren't connected for my brain to go, okay, now body, let's move, let's do this thing. And your body just kind of sits there and doesn't move and doesn't do anything. It's you know, even psyching, there were some days that were so bad for me that I would ha lay in bed and have to really psych myself up, just, right, okay, 
just sit up in bed okay now swing your legs around let's get up let's get out of bed just doing that was effort enough never mind doing all these other Mm. things to look after my well-being yeah did you think any of the advice he gave was useful? I think, as we said before, that talking, like seeking help. Absolutely. I think I think the advice is great. Generally, if you're doing a PhD, self-care, looking after yourself, identifying your personal strengths, dealing with problems when they first happen. But when you're actually starting mm. to get the symptoms of whether it's depression, anxiety, whether it's issues with perfectionism, or whether it's a more serious mental health issue like schizophrenia, etc., these things become very difficult and you need further you need more advice than than simply identify your strengths liana yeah i think you spoke to the key issues very eloquently already um i think his advice there's nothing that i take issue with in his advice per se but i think he's taking a preventative approach which is probably what he's and paid to do um so i think yeah it's it's great kind of generic advice for doing a phd but i don't think it's terribly helpful for someone who already is suffering from a mental health problem or who has kind of found themselves in a crisis of some sort um i also think that you know there's a reason that phd students have a high you know that there's a high concentration of mental illness among phd students and that reason is not just because these students have kind of arbitrarily internalized these crazy standards and expectations for themselves out of nowhere. It's because we're part of both an institutional and cultural context um, that incentivizes certain kind of problematic (laughs) ways of being in the world and thinking about yourself. So higher education is, is, you know, a very high concentration of people who are extremely ambitious, who are type A, who are introspective, who are very intense personalities. um, And it's not surprising to me actually that that is conducive to developing mental health problems another issue is obviously isolation I think we underestimate how easy it is doing a PhD to go entire days without seeing anybody or without being part of a social context so yeah the one thing I appreciated that he mentioned was talking about building uh, community Uh, I think more could be done on the institutional side to do that so our cohort we had one organized event (laughs) the first year uh, that a lot of people weren't even able to attend. So I think more work um, on the the part of institutions to organize like meetings for social networking and also uh, across institutions. So talking with uh, anthropology students and cohorts at UCL, you know, we've never done that in in the three years I've been here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now we move on to a song that Laura chose, uh, which hopefully will put us in a happier mood. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about the song? Yeah, so um, my husband is a huge fan of Back to the Future. <laughs> and um, I really love 1950s and 60s rock. Um, and I chose this song just because it's quite, it's I find it quite motivational. It's really upbeat, it's happy. The, the story and the lyrics is really upbeat as well. Like... Um, if you listen to them, it's about a boy coming from nothing and he makes it to basically be a rock star. Um, so I chose uh, Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. Right. We'll be right back. Way back up in the woods among the evergreens, there stood a long cat. 
Oh, what a lovely, uplifting song. Thank you for bringing that in. We've arrived at the end of our of our session today, and I've I've really, despite the heavy topic we've been discussing, I've really enjoyed this, and and I hope it's provided some useful insights to the listeners. Um, I think both Liana and Laura have done such a great job of both sharing personal experience, but also giving us advice throughout. Um, so to end on, is there anything, Liana, you'd like to reiterate about about what all of us can do mm -hmm. to take care of ourselves and, and, and seek help? Mm -hmm. uh, just a few quick points. I am a huge advocate of taking weekends as a PhD student. I know a lot of people don't believe they can, but I, I have been and I'm doing okay so far. Um, think of your PhD as um, in the context of your vocation, not just a career and accept being flawed. We all are. It's never going to end. <laughs> These are things that have helped me. Um, I had a, a very quick piece of advice on how to help others who are going through this mm. kind of problem, especially depression. Um, it's not always what you think. and uh, Like what will be helpful is not always what you think. Um, so I've been told on several occasions that just telling someone, you know, everything is okay, like trying to reason with someone is not helpful. Um, telling them the world is beautiful and you'll get past this is not helpful. Just being present in certain ways can be extremely helpful. So an example from the Depressed Soul podcast mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, um, someone who is severely depressed and off work for quite a while said the thing that helped most was Uh, a friend coming and just massaging his feet every day in mm -hmm. silence for half an hour. So I, I think that's a beautiful illustration of kind of the diversity of forms that help can come in. Mm. And I would just like to piggyback on that. Um, there's a myth that, that if you're depressed and people say, but what have you got to be sad about? Depression is not always about sadness. Um, some people just cry and they don't have a reason to cry and it makes them cry even more. Um, and, and sometimes if you feel like, if you are feeling that way and you feel like you want to cry, then my best advice is just cry. Honestly, I've had some pretty rubbish days and just crying under the covers is probably the best thing that I've done to make myself even feel a little bit better. And uh, apart from that, I would say, uh, your GP uh, go and speak to your, your GP if there's even the slightest sign that you think that there is something not really quite right there as I said earlier there's strength in asking for help it does not make you a weak person to ask for help and um, something I do as well as I said I'm, I, I try and make my bed every morning because that's at least one little thing that I can do that's productive and and that That kind of makes me feel a little bit better. I've, I've achieved that one thing, um, which to some people might seem very minimal. But to me, on some days, that that's actually a lot for me. And I would also say as well, other PhD students um, or other people who have, have experienced mental health issues as well can be really helpful. I have a monthly meetup with another mm. PhD student from another university and we sit there for like four hours and all we do is <laughs> moan about PhD problems and that's so cathartic and it's so releasing because I think a PhD is one of those things where just nobody else really understands what you're going through uh, whether they understand your topic is neither here nor there for me but just the actual process of a PhD I think only other PhD students or people who have done it really fully understand it so just talking about it with someone else who understands it is really helpful uh, to me so it might be for others thank you for saying that I, I agree 
absolutely agree. And actually, this is kind of one of the points of having this podcast um, to really to have this cathartic experience of, of, of linking up both in the studio, but also with the listeners um, about experiences that are that are really hard to understand unless you go through them. So thank you for saying that. Um, over here, I have just a couple of um, suggestions for places that listeners can look uh, for help. Uh, everything's online here. I've got uh, the Samaritans who have uh, a helpline, Hopeline UK and Nightline, which is a student-based uh, helpline, which runs only on term times, but it's it's a good one to go to. And as Laura said, the GP and friends and family, so don't bottle it in to to end on. Um, I'd like to really thank you both again for joining me here today. Um, I I really appreciate that you've taken the time to think about these questions, and and I know it's it's been certainly useful for me to hear to hear about your thoughts on on this topic. I'm going to end on uh, with a cover by Nina Simone of a <clears throat> song called Oh Child, which hopefully can uh, reassure us and everyone that things eventually will be okay. Uh, thank you, uh, listeners. Uh, this was SOAS Radio, and you've been listening to The Imposters. Things'll get brighter. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things'll get brighter. Someday we'll get it together and we'll get it undone. Someday when the world is much brighter. Someday we'll walk in the rays of a beautiful sun. Someday when the world is much lighter Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier Ooh, child, things will get brighter Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier Ooh, child, things will get brighter Someday we'll get it together and we'll get it undone Someday when the world is much brighter Someday we'll walk together in a beautiful sun Someday when the world is much lighter Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier Ooh, child, things will get brighter Uh-huh.